Matthew 14. We're continuing our way through Matthew this morning. We're going to read today about a man who didn't do much except put his head on a chopping block to honor the king. Would you please look with me, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to go verses 1 to 11. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, that tells you the situation if you're reading carefully. Herod put John in prison because Herodias told him to. Herodias is not his wife, but he's arresting innocent man, an innocent man for her. And the innocent man was saying, you can't have her. So just from those verses right there, you get the whole picture. He's with his brother's wife. The text goes on, verse 5, though he wanted to put him to death, he's a politician, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And the Gospel of Mark adds, as much as half of his kingdom, he was prepared to give it to his stepdaughter. She doesn't want half of the kingdom. Verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter, right now. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and he had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother, Herodias. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. We're going to look at verse 12 next week. But that's how this story ends. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you and we thank you, Father, for John the Baptist his ministry proclaiming the greatness of the king, the glory, the undiminished, unrivaled excellence of Jesus. We thank you, God, that he held to your truth even when it cost him his life. I pray, God, that we would be inspired by this Baptist, that we would strive to be like him, that we would hold to the truth as firmly and as passionately as he did. I pray, God, that your spirit would work in our hearts this morning, that you would open our minds and our eyes to see and to understand exactly what it is that you are saying in this text. I pray that you would give us the courage to stand for your justice, what is truly lawful, and more than all of that, to stand, God, for the truth of the true King, Jesus. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In retrospect, what she really needed, what this girl really needed, was a man who would stand for her. 
a man who would stand for what was right and not what was wrong. I'm talking about Salome, that's her name, this young girl in this text. She's about 13 or 14 years old. From what we know of historical records, she was just a teenager, just barely a teenager. And as this account is recorded for us in extra-biblical sources as well as here in the scriptures, what we understand of this situation is that Herod decided to have a birthday party to honor himself. Birthday parties are not heard of anywhere in the scripture except in two places. In Genesis, it talks about Pharaoh throwing himself a birthday party, and then this one here where Herod throws himself a birthday party. Jews are not big on birthday parties. Herod is a Jew by birth. That's his nationality. So from the very fact that he is throwing himself a birthday party, you know that this king of the Jews, this Herod, he has become enamored with Greek culture and Greek custom. And so he decides to throw himself a birthday party. Now, he invites all of the distinguished people in the land, all of the high-ranking government officials, all of the individuals who help his power, who advance his kingdom, who help him rule and administer the land that he presides over, which is Galilee. Galilee and then Perea, just to the other side of the Jordan River, where John the Baptist has been having his ministry. And the problem is that the Baptist has gone just a little bit too far. He went so far as to publicly condemn what Herod has done. Well, what has Herod done? The text makes it clear that we're talking about Herod. Uh, it's not Philip. It's another individual, Herod Antipas. And he's a part of a very twisted family. If you're into daytime, days of our lives type dramas, that's got nothing on what we see here with Herod. This guy is the son of Herod the Great, Herod the Great had many, many children by many, many wives, and he was paranoid, so paranoid he began to fear that some of his sons would eventually kill him in order to take the throne from him, and they wouldn't allow him to die a natural death, so he began killing some of his sons in order to secure his throne. This is the environment that Herod Antipas would have grown up in. This is the environment that his brother Philip grew up in. Herod Antipas eventually is granted authority to rule over the land of Galilee. He's not granted the whole kingdom. The kingdom is divided amongst several of the brothers. He is a tetrarch. He rules over Galilee, which is the northern region of, of Israel. It's northern region of Israel. And he marries, for political reasons, the daughter of King Aretas IV, who presides over a land called Nabatea, or Nabatea, depending on how you pronounce it. This land is to the east and south of Galilee and Perea, modern-day Saudi Arabia. And so for political purposes, Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, who murdered several of his brothers, married this princess. She was good-looking. But Herod saw another woman who was even better-looking, Herodias. Now, Herodias, <laughs> it's hard to track all of this. You have to stick with me here. Herodias is the daughter of Herod Aristobulus. You say, who is Herod Aristobulus? He's dead because King Herod the Great killed him a long time ago. Herodias is the niece of 
King Philip, whom she marries. Herodias prefers Herod Antipas, Philip's brother, who is also her uncle, her great-uncle. So her second husband, after she ditches Philip and marries Antipas, her second husband happens to also be her uncle. Does that sound twisted enough for you? This is a rather inbred family, a rather redneck family, as we say from where I'm from in the South. What's even better is when Herod proposes to Herodias that they get married to each other, they're both still technically married to their previous spouses. And even better than this, he gets down on one knee and pops the question in Philip's castle with his wife gone, having gone to bed early in the other room. And Philip, we don't know where Philip was, but it would be like this. You are married. Your brother is married. You go to your brother's house for a weekend sort of getaway. And while you're there, your wife says, man, it's been a wonderful night. I'm going to call it a night. And she goes to bed. Your brother, he's out gone somewhere. Maybe he's gone to bed too. We don't know what happened with Philip. But you're sitting there with your sister-in-law, who incidentally happens to be your niece. And you say, hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't you and I get married? And she says, yes, the man of my dreams, uncle. (laughs) That's this situation that we're dealing with here. Herodias comes to live with Herod Antipas, and she brings her daughter with her, a young girl by the name of Salome, which would be Herod's great-niece, who also is now his stepdaughter. John the Baptist has been saying, this is wrong on so many levels. And Herodias is so filled with anger that on the night that Herod decides to celebrate his birthday, they have planned that some exotic dancers will entertain the guests. And Herodias is going to be the ma- Herodias's daughter, Salome, is going to be the main attraction. She preps her daughter to go in and do her best routine. And of course, Salome does her best routine. And as all of these guests, led by her uncle, now stepfather, in a drunken stupor, are so smitten with her and so filled with lust and so impressed by her dance moves that Herod cannot resist but standing up and in a drunken, disgusting display of lust for his niece says, you did such a good job dancing for all of us tonight that I will give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. And Salome turns to her mother. What should I ask for? And Herodias says, ask that John the Baptist, who is in prison because of his preaching against this relationship, 
be killed this very night, beheaded, and that his head be brought to me on a platter. And Salome does. I've often wondered every time I've read this passage what it would have been like from her perspective. Your mother, who loves you, who ought to be the most tender, most affectionate, most caring person in the world, pulls you aside and begins to instruct you in the ways of the world and how to beguile and seduce men. And then, in a fit of rage over what John the Baptist has said, begins to instruct you and to teach you how to seduce your own uncle, stepfather, and how to entice him with such lust that you can then make the request that he would give you John the Baptist's head on a platter. What's Salome thinking? What's going through her mind as she's considering her own mother? She obviously wants the approval of her mom. She's obviously gained the favor of her uncle. And so she does. She asks for John the Baptist's head. McLaren makes this interesting comment regarding Herodias. See, Herodias wanted John killed, but the text makes it clear that Herod wouldn't do it because the people held John to be a prophet. So Herod's not going to do it because if he does it, it'll create an uprising. So he imprisons him, but he doesn't kill him. But Herodias isn't satisfied. She wants him dead, which is why she introduces her daughter into the equation. McLaren makes this interesting comment. When one weapon failed, she drew another from a full quiver. And the means which were finally successful showed not only her thorough knowledge of the weak man that she had called her husband, but her readiness to stoop to any level of degradation for herself and her child in order to carry the point. Many a shameless woman would have shrunk from sullying their own daughter's childhood by sending her to play the part of a shameless dancing girl before a crew of half-tipsy revelers. Many a shameless woman would have shrunk from teaching their young daughter's lips to ask for murder. But Herodias shrinks from nothing and is as insensible to the duty of a mother as to that of a wife. If we put together these features in her character, her hot animal passions, her cool, inflexible rage and revenge, her cynical disregard of all decency, her deadness to any natural affection for her own child her ferocity and her cunning, we have before us the most hideous picture of corrupted womanhood. You have a political, politically motivated king, you have an enraged, angry woman, and you have a daughter caught in the middle that is manipulated by one and used by the other. In retrospect, what Salome really needed was someone who would stand up for her, who would stand up for what was right. And ironically enough, the one that was prepared to stand up for her was the one whose head she asked for on a platter. Look back at the text. It says in verse 3, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. 
Now, John and Herod aren't best buds. It's not like Herod's in his kingdom, in his castle, ruling the kingdom, and John is out there preaching, you know, the Baptist way, repent, you know, the kingdom of heaven is a hand, and then at the end of the day, they decide to kick it, kick it off together and hang out in the castle and have a few drinks and sort of call it an evening, and he kind of reasons with him across from himself there in the, in the dining room and say, you know, I don't know that this relationship you have with your, with your niece is really the best thing for you. It's not like that. They're not close. They don't hang out. They don't go fishing together. John the Baptist, when he says to Herod, you are not supposed to have her, that is unlawful. He's not saying it to him face to face. He's got to be doing it the way that John the Baptist does it, which is public in the form of a sermon. He is outwardly decrying the corruption of the king. He is outwardly saying that the king is wrong to marry his own relation. The king is wrong to be involved in these things. It is not lawful. And that's a problem because King Herod is responsible for upholding the law. And John the Baptist is saying, the law you're supposed to be upholding, you are breaking it. And that is what landed the Baptist in prison. He makes a statement, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, the whole Herodian family is very smitten, very taken with Greek customs, Roman customs. They are Jewish by birth. They are Jewish by ancestry. But it's quite clear that they prefer all of the other trappings of the world around them. They subscribe to the Roman legal system. They adhere to the Roman understanding of law. And, of course, if you know anything about the Romans, the Romans get a lot of their legal theory and their understanding of law from the Greeks. Undoubtedly, the philosophy of the Greeks and what justice is and what justice looks like and what law is and what law is supposed to look like has permeated Herod's mindset. Do you know what the justice of the Greeks looks like? Do you know how Greeks would have defined justice? In all non-biblical literature, I think the best pagan description of justice from this time period would come from Plato's The Republic. If you know anything about uh, classical literature, Plato, he's a Greek philosopher, around about the time of Socrates and all of these guys, and he creates this dialogue between this fictional character, who's also a real-life character, Socrates, and a number of friends. It's kind of like the book of Job. You've got Job, and he's involved in these dialogue with these three friends who basically tell him he's a sinner, and he's like, ah, I don't think I am. And they kind of go back and forth. It's the same way with Plato's Republic. There's this dialogue that's had there. And in the midst of this dialogue, this concept of justice is presented. Listen to this. They say that to do injustice, that is what is wrong, is by nature, good. To do what is wrong is by nature good, but to suffer injustice, that is, to suffer what is wrong, is evil. But the evil of suffering through injustice is much greater than the good which is had by perpetrating injustice. And so when men have both done and suffered their share of injustice and have had experience of both, not being able to avoid the one and yet not having the ability to obtain the other, they think that they had better agree among themselves to have neither. Hence there arises law and mutual covenants and that which is ordained by law is termed by them 
lawful and just. This they affirm to be the origin and the nature of justice. It is a mean or a compromise between the best of all, which is to do injustice, and the worst of all, which is to suffer injustice without the power of retaliation. And justice being a middle point between the two is tolerated not as a good, but as a lesser evil. And it is honored by reason of the inability of men to do injustice. Hear what Plato's character is saying. Men really want to do what's wrong. Men like doing what is wrong. Scripture affirms that. Plato observes that. Here's where the scriptures and Plato disagree. Plato says we all want to do what is wrong. We all want to cheat. We all want to get ahead. We all want to take advantage of other people and use other people to further our own interests. We all do it. We all like it. But we've all had it happen to us. We've all been taken advantage of. We've all been wronged. And we don't like that. So justice is not something that is good. It's an agreement that we enter into only to protect ourselves from when we suffer injustice and don't have the power of retaliation. King Herod is called to be king over this region, Galilee, in Judea. He is called to uphold the law. And as we understand this passage here, he engages in a number of things which are clearly unlawful. He locks up an innocent man who's done nothing wrong except to quote the law and to declare what he is doing is wrong. So he perverts the biblical form of justice, number one, by locking up an innocent man. Number two, Roman law forbids Jewish kings from carrying out the death penalty. That's why the Pharisees had to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate. The second thing that Herod does here, which is clearly wrong, is he implements the death penalty without even Roman sanction to do so. So when John says to the king, the one that's supposed to uphold the law, you're breaking the law on so many levels, Herod's response is to get angry and break the law on so many more levels. Like, have you ever told someone that they have an anger problem and then they fly off the handle in a rage of anger at you and like, no, I don't. That's kind of what you have here. You're a lawbreaker. No, I'm not breaking the law. That's what Herod does. He proves John's point by his behavior. John says it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The scriptures uphold the sanctity of marriage. He's quoting scripture when he says this. When John says it's not lawful what you're doing, what he is saying is you are defying the justice of God. Regardless of whatever your pagan philosopher's understanding of justice is, John is saying that there is a higher form of justice, there is a higher form of righteousness to which we are all bound. We find in the scriptures that God's law, his justice, isn't, as Plato says, the lesser of two evils, a compromise between 
doing injustice and suffering injustice. Justice is eternal because it is rooted in the character of God. Makes a statement in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Justice is a part of the character of God, which means justice is going to be woven throughout the fabric of all that he creates. It is not some arbitrary compromise among men where they try to agree on certain rules so as to avoid suffering wrong and perpetrating wrong. It's not a compromise between those things. Justice is something that is fundamental to every person, not because we're trying to come up with some sense of fair play, but because God says you are created in my image, and as a result, you are inherent to certain rights that cannot be violated. That's the nature of justice. It isn't just wrong because it infringes on this person's rights and it gives this person an unfair advantage. It's wrong because it is always wrong and it will always be wrong. Justice is first and foremost rooted in God's character. And we know it's going to be eternal. It's going to go on forever. One of my favorite passages, Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government for telling the coming messianic reign on this earth. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Justice will go on for eternity. What is it, though? When we talk about the enduring eternal nature of justice and we talk about it being rooted in God's character, what is it? Like, have you ever really sat down and, like, tried to define it? Like, what is justice? The Bible gives a description. To hate evil and love good is to establish justice in the gate. From Amos. In other words, it's not just an agreement where we say, well, let's have some fair play here. I don't want you to do wrong to me, and, you know, but I want to do wrong to you, but I, I'll give up some of that ability to do wrong to you so that you don't do it to me, and we'll try to get ahead that way. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's good and there is evil. There is that which is consistent with the character of God, and there is that which he abhors. And people who do justice are not people who just agree to not do things that violate God's character. The people who do justice are the people who love what is good and hate what is evil. And so in this passage, the scriptures are calling for us to have an emotional appreciation for the character of God and in that emotional appreciation of treasuring his righteousness we approach justice. Job, Psalm 82.3, says that what justice is, is it's a correct valuation of people, understanding them as being created in the image of God. It requires for you to do justice a correct appreciation, a correct value of people. It says, give justice to the weak. This is Psalm 82. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. In this particular psalm, the two people that typically tend to get overlooked, the lower citizens in society, the fatherless, the orphans, the poor, the disenfranchised. 
And what Scripture is saying is that justice requires a fair treatment of them, an appreciation for what happens to them, same as you. It is something that belongs to everyone. In Job chapter 8, he makes a statement, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right, what belongs to people? It's something that requires a proper respect for the worth of the individual, making sure that they get what they are entitled to, and it is to be equal. Because all men are equal as they are created in the image of God. In 2 Samuel 8, it says, David reigned over all the nation of Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So there's an equality that should exist in justice. And then again in Proverbs 1.3, wisdom is said to be the one who is wise is said to be the one who receives instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, and in equity. That is what is fair for all people. Now as you've been following these definitions, you notice there's a word that's mentioned right alongside justice all the time. Righteousness. That which is righteous. So there's no understanding of justice apart from an understanding of God's character. There's no understanding of what constitutes true justice without knowing what the Bible says about who the Father is. And if you are ever tempted to give yourself a pass and yet hold someone to an unbelievably high standard, that's not justice. Because justice says whatever the standard is, it applies to everyone equally. We're not entering into compromised agreements. We're not trying to accept justice as the lesser of two evils. We are trying to have a proper respect for the person of God and how God's image is reflected amongst creation when we seek to do what is righteous and fair for everyone. That's justice. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, that's great. So John the Baptist is saying it's not lawful for you to be married to this woman. And then he got killed for it. Cool. So what? What does this have to do with me? All this stuff you're saying is great. All that you're talking about in terms of justice, that's wonderful. We happen to live in a society that, you know, has a fairly advanced legal system. You know, we're not, we don't live in Kenya where, like, you got to bribe people in order to get justice. you got to pay people off. You know, for the most part, our legal system works for the most part, our police officers do their job. We don't have this struggle with trying to understand what justice is. That's right. For the most part, our society does value and appreciate justice. But do we, as in us in this room, The last thing about justice is people who are said to be Christians who walk with God are described by the Bible as people who do justice. In Micah 6 it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly 
with your God. To do justice. What's John the Baptist doing in this passage? He is proclaiming what is right and what is wrong. The king, the individual who's responsible for upholding justice, is violating it. And John is preaching against that violation. You know, a couple chapters back, we were there probably like a year ago. What did Jesus say about the Baptist? He was the greatest of all men born up until that point. What did the Baptist do that was so great? He had no wife, he had no family, he had no inheritance, he didn't have a large estate that he left anyone, he didn't have any legacy. In fact, if you consider this man's life, he was hated by the world, he is imprisoned by Herod, he was basically executed by Herodias, he was put to death, he was appreciated by no one, no one cared about him, no one valued him. One person, one man said, this guy was great and his name was Jesus. The Pharisees didn't like him. The religious establishment didn't like him. And from what we know, he wasn't preaching just this soft, wonderful, mushy-gushy love like God loves you and just kind of pinching all of our cheeks. He was preaching about the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, and the fact that we are all lawbreakers. And Jesus' statement, taking into consideration the whole Old Testament up until this point, of all those born among women, John was the greatest. What was he doing that was so great? One thing, he was doing justice by preaching what was true. He was proclaiming what was right. He was holding to God's standard. And when even the murderous son of an even more murderous king came to power and did what was abhorrently wrong, when he sees a young girl being manipulated and used for sexual gratification, who is it that is standing up knowing that it might cost him his life? You see, we like to talk about justice. We like to say that we live in a society that is just. But do we really speak out when we encounter that which is wrong? Or do we do the Canadian thing? Live and let live. I think that's wrong. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that out loud. I apologize. Our country is described as the most polite in the world, and it really is. It's polite in all the right ways, and it's polite in all, all the wrong ways, too. You see, justice isn't so much just giving people vengeance when they do what is wrong. It's standing up for people who have been wrong. Justice isn't establishing a series of punishments, a series of uh, prison sentences and various fines and things that need to be put on people when they break the law. That's not justice. That's not the totality of justice. Justice is loving those people who suffer injustice. Justice is standing up for those people who have been wronged. Justice means saying to someone, this is wrong. 
you know, we say that we have to stand up for what is right. We have to love people. We have to honor people who are the victims of what is wrong. And when we look at John the Baptist, we say, yeah, okay, but look where it gets us. He was killed. He died. It's true that when John stood up for what was right, it cost him his life. But look back at verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Well, what's the end conclusion of doing justice? If you stand for what is right, the world will hate you, and it may even cost you your life. Or will it? I'm not saying that you will escape the punishments that this world has to mete out to people who stand up for the true righteousness of God. John the Baptist was executed. But his executioner, the one who killed him, suspected that was not the real end of the story. His suggestion is preposterous. If he had just bothered to be a little bit more informed, he would have known that Jesus and John the Baptist's ministries happened simultaneously. There was an overlap there from when John's ministry began to wane and when Jesus' ministry began to take off. He would have known that these two people lived at the same time, so there's no way that Jesus could have been the reincarnated version of John the Baptist. And yet, when he hears that there's a man running around Galilee who is preaching the truth, who is doing miracles, what does his guilty conscience immediately tell me that it tell him that it must be it's got to be john the guy that i thought i killed he's come back when you do what is right the world may kill you for it but this is how you know it's right when even the people who insist that they are right and that the righteousness of god is wrong and break the law, and persecute you, and ostracize you, and inflict all manner of evil upon you. They know, because justice is perfectly illustrated right here in this passage. It's something that's written on every human heart, and no matter how many people you kill, no matter all the different ways you try to suppress the truth, you can't ignore it. He couldn't run away from the fact that what he had done was wrong. And as soon as he heard that there was a preacher, another one running around Galilee, immediately he jumps to the assumption that John is back. It's not over. And he's not getting away from it. Listen to me. Herod hints at something else that is true. This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. The real reward for standing for the justice of God. And the world knows it even though they deny it. Is that for those who honor Christ, though the world will kill you and try to kill you in this lifetime, 
those who stand for the righteousness of God have the promise of eternal life. And everybody knows it. Let's bow forward of prayer.